you have a Bible, we'll go back to Romans chapter 9. So we're going to continue the short series on Israel that we've been talking about, Israel and its relation to the church. And last week, we took a brief look at what's known as replacement theology. It's been in the church, prominent in the church, almost since the beginning. It's been the prominent view, replacement theology. And briefly, a brief definition is replacement theology states that the church takes the place of Israel as the historical people of God. Or even briefer than that is the church is the new Israel or the true Israel. Maybe many of you haven't heard about that, but believe me, it's growing, it's increasing, it's coming back. So it dominated the church until, that was the main teaching except for a very few people until the Holocaust happened. And then when that tragic event happened, the anti-Semitic views that were prominent in the church, they kind of became an embarrassment really is what happened. And so the teaching didn't disappear, but you could say it went underground. And so now currently it is resurfacing. So evangelicals had tended for a long period of time or through the 60s, 70s, whatever, in the 80s, had tended to be pre-millennial and pro-Israel. I had to read a lot of stuff in school, conservative evangelical books, and people are departing from pre-millennialism in support of Israel and heading into amillennialism. And when that happens, you generally will get into replacement theology because you start denying the millennial will happen. You're going to deny that he's going to come back and rule and reign from Jerusalem and that the Jews are going to be brought back to their country. All of that seems to go hand in hand. So the attitude then is, since the church has replaced Israel as God's people, this is what people that have that viewpoint think, and I've been around it. They think that them getting their land back and being restored as a nation, as they've had today in 1940, I mean, it's a miracle. But they say that has no real biblical significance, and it's just purely a secular and political thing that happened. So it's going to take me another week. I'll tell you that right now. Okay, another week. And because I don't want to rush through where we see clearly, it'll be the, towards the end of, of Romans 11, where God clearly says that he will bring that nation back to their land. And they'll all be saved. I mean, it, to me, it's as clear as can be. So I want to look at that. But that's what they're saying. They don't think that's happening. And so what's happening is, though, many people now are seeing that Israel's current treatment of the Palestinians is wrong. <laughs> what they believe is they think the Jews, Israel should just give up its sovereign rights to that land and just share equally with the Palestinian and other nations. They think they should no longer be a sovereign nation. So in case you're wondering where I was Sunday, we, we were in D.C. and I don't know if it was Saturday or Friday, but we went to the Holocaust Museum there. Uh, and that's quite an experience. I'm not going to give you all the details of that tonight. But one thing that was interesting is they make this place like, see, you get lost on purpose and disoriented and you're in crowds. And, and this lady told us that they do that on purpose. So you experience what they experienced. And all that did to us is made us want to leave. <laughs> not really. But what I want to get to is there was a lady there. We had gotten lost just trying to find a restroom and couldn't find that. And there was a lady there holding this tour guide sign up. So I went up and started talking to her, and really liked her at first. And I was asking her about anti-Semitism, and she's like, oh, yeah, it's definitely 
on the increase. So everything I've been reading was accurate. She says, that's what I've been studying now for years. That's been her little thing of studying. She says, it's definitely on the increase. So Lisa and I were like, well, yeah, we've been to Israel and all that. She goes, well, what was your impression? And so I started to give my impression. I didn't really even get a finish, and she cut me off. And she's like, well, I've been there. And I went with this such and such a group. She named some things she saw going on. And she said, how does Israel expect to have peace in the land when they terrorize those Palestinians and the way they treat them? She says, it'll never happen. And I'm thinking, did you go to the same place I went to? Have you read the same things I've read? I thought, you have got everything backwards. It's like somebody said, you know, if Israel drops their guns, they will be wiped out. If the Palestinians will just drop their arms, we'll have peace. So I didn't want to get into all that with her, standing there talking to her. I just let her talk. And yes, ma'am, thank you very much. The bathroom's over there. Appreciate it. Because I'm listening thinking that is like bailing the ocean out with a spoon, and she definitely had an agenda. But the other thing is she showed me two things. This anti-Semitism I've been reading about that's growing worldwide, it really is. And the other thing is this idea that is being propagated that Israel is oppressing the Palestinians, has no right to that land and should give up their sovereignty, is also permeating everywhere. I mean, I was rather shocked because, honestly, I wanted to find somebody and say, I think that lady needs to get fired. I mean, I thought this was a pro-Israel place right here in the Holocaust. And so biblically, what we're trying to answer is the question in the title of the message, has God cast away his people? Meaning... National Israel. Has God cast away national Israel? And we looked last week in Romans 11.1. 1, Paul raises that question, has God cast away his people? And we said Paul clearly answers the question. He says, God forbid. God forbid. That is the strongest negative that you can use in the Greek language. And he uses it all throughout the book of Romans. God forbid. It's like saying, man, there is no way. It's impossible. That's what God forbid would mean in their vernacular. So we looked last time, we finally managed to get into Romans 9, and we're going to go through Romans 10 and into Romans 11 today. And so what I said was that after Paul, after having laid out the plan of salvation in Romans chapter 1 through 8, it appears on the surface that he just abruptly changes topics. And he starts describing this great heaviness or grief which he says is a continual, never-ending source of distress in his heart. He just like brings that almost, it seems like, out of the blue. And he just got through saying that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And then he goes right into that. And it just honestly seems out of place in a way. But it isn't out of place. Because what is this grief all about that Paul's having? What is this grief that his fellow Jews, he goes on to say in the beginning of Romans 9, that his fellow Jews, his blood brethren, are opposing his gospel and they're rejecting the good news that God is giving them and they're perishing as a result. And it's breaking Paul's heart. And he says, I could wish that myself I was accursed, cast off from Christ, if my fellow Jews could be saved. That's not saying that he really wants that to happen, but it's a what if. (laughs) That would be almost worth it is what he's saying that his fellow Jews could be saved because he's watching them perish. So he obviously has a love for the nation of Israel. And I've thought all the time, when you look at 9 and you look at 10, and Paul talks about his distress about what's happening to Israel and the fact that most of them are perishing, I'm saying that's not just put in Scripture so we can get a little psychological insight into Paul. 
It's because that's God's heart too. They are his, still his beloved people as we've seen. So that's what his grief's all about. And he's in, in the beginning of Romans 9, he lists all the privileges we talked about last time that they've been given, the adoption, the covenants, the promises. And he says, even the Lord Jesus Christ was a Jew in the flesh, came as a Jew in the flesh. Yet he says the bulk of the nation of Israel, despite all these privileges and promises and covenants, and that the Lord himself, God himself, came and visited his people as one of them, as a Jew. And all of it's been rejected. And so Paul's dealing with this right here because it seems that the promise made to Abraham is failing or has failed. So he answers the question that would come to any thinking person's mind after reading these first eight chapters because this whole book is filled with Scripture. But if the Jews, the chosen privileged people of God, aren't being saved, and God promised Abraham that they would be, then the question would be that how can we Gentiles trust this God to keep promises to us? And so if you're in chapter 9, that's what Paul answers in verse 6. He said, it's not as though the word of God has taken none effect, which means failed. It's not as though the word of God has failed. And he goes on to say there, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. So he's saying, as we said last time, there is an Israel within Israel, a true Israel within Israel. And so for the rest of chapter 9, Paul makes a case, verses 6 through 29, that God has been true and faithful to his word because the Old Testament itself never promised that every natural child of Abraham would be the seed, that it was only the elect that would be the seed, not every natural descendant of Abraham, only the children of promise. And the point of chapter 9 is the doctrine of election is there. God's sovereignty and election, we went through that now. He reaches down in the mass of sinful humanity and chooses certain ones. He doesn't choose everyone. If you want to say it, everyone doesn't have the same chance, so to speak, because when Adam sinned, we sinned in him. And that's when we forfeited, quote-unquote, everyone having the same chance. Because now it is God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he sovereignly does that. Believe me, that is a hard pill to swallow if you really think about what's being said there. It really is. And so that's why the majority of Christianity tends towards Armenianism. He gives everybody the same chance. And it's us that either chooses or refuses to choose the Lord. Now, that's not what the Bible teaches it says the ones that are elected, the ones that are saved, it's all by God's grace. And it's all by his choosing. So read chapter 9. It's pretty clearly stated there. It's his choosing. Paul goes on to say in chapter 9, verses 24 to 26, that he chooses, he reaches down and chooses some Gentiles to salvation. Look in verse 24, chapter 9, verse 24. He says, even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only. So he's saying he didn't just call and elect Jews only, but who else? Also of the Gentiles. As he said also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which are not my people, and her beloved, which are not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it have been said unto them, you are not my people, that's us Gentiles, there shall they be called the children of the living God. 
He's saying the ones that weren't his people, not his chosen people, God has reached down and selected some Gentiles. That's us. And we should be glad about that. But he also says that he would always have that remnant there within Israel, that Israel within Israel. Verse 27, Isaiah, he said, also cries concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea. There will be a multitude of them, but yet, he says at the end of verse 27, just the remnant will be saved. So what he's done there, and he backs everything up by Scripture. Every point he makes, he doesn't just say, this is my opinion. Everything has got an Old Testament Scripture to back it up. What he's saying there, he's made a biblical case that salvation is purely based on God's choice. So he had said back in verse 16, it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, nor of him that is a Jew, nor of him that joins a church, but who is it based on? Who's the ones that are saved? God that shows mercy. And no one's going to dictate that to him. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And he says, whom I will. God says, whom I will, I harden. So there's those that are hardened. And man, that sounds hard, doesn't it? A hard pill to swallow. One point I want to make out of all this is, through this chapter 9, is Paul never confuses the Jews and Gentiles. He never gets them mixed up. They're never mixed up in all the New Testament, for that matter. So he chooses some of his children from Israel, and some of those are chosen from those we just read that are not called his people. That's what we just read there at the end of Romans 9. So the Gentiles are included with the chosen of Israel. But they never lose their nationalities. Jews are still Jews, and Gentiles remain Gentiles. Okay? And that's basically where we ended last time. So we move on. And from chapter 9, verse 30, really, if you didn't know this, the chapter breaks and the verse numbers are not inspired, okay? Because most of the time they're pretty good, but there's a lot of times they're really not put in the best place. So I'm saying it would have been better, I think, to start chapter 10 up in verse 30 of chapter 9, but they didn't ask me, so (laughs) it isn't really going to matter. But anyways... From verse 30 in chapter 9 all the way through the end of chapter 10, Paul argues through this chapter 10, basically, that the reason most Jews are excluded from salvation is because they chose to ignore God's way of obtaining salvation. And how is that? By faith. Well, we should know that of all places. Faith is the way it's obtained. So he says here, he says, look, the Gentiles, they they didn't have a word to guide them. They didn't know how to seek salvation, how to seek righteousness. They had no word to guide them. And yet, it found them by God's grace. Righteousness found them. They found what they weren't looking for by God's grace. But Israel, they chose to believe that they could be saved by keeping the law, by works. And that's what we have here at the end of chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. What I just said is what we'll read here. Paul says, well, what shall I say then? that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness, because they didn't know about it, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hasn't attained to the law of righteousness. And why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. 
As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So he's saying they stumbled on that. They were ignorance. They thought they could do it through keeping the law, but it was a willful ignorance, I would add. And he goes on to say they are zealous. Zealous for keeping that law. In fact, they added a bunch to it. They were so zealous. And there's a lot of people that are zealous to go out and witness, to do this, to do that, do all these good deeds. And zeal is no substitute, though, for truth and faith, is it? There's a lot of busy people that are going to perish. That's just a sad fact. And so the Jews, through self-righteous pride, they fell. They thought they could keep that law, not realize that law is just pointing to the fact you are fallen. That's all it was supposed to show. It's so fallen that you need to be offering these lambs constantly, offering these sacrifices and these lambs to cover your sins. So something's not right. It can't be by keeping the law you're going to be right. And the end of the law, it says, is faith in Christ. That's where the law comes to. And yet they miss that. So look in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. He says, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I bear them record they have a zeal, but it's not a zeal according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, they haven't submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. That's where it's all pointing to, for righteousness to everyone that believes. And so they totally missed that. So now I'm not going to go through all of the rest of chapter 10, but verses 5 through 17 basically describe how salvation by faith operates. And what Paul tells us there, someone has got to preach the word. You've got to have somebody preaching the word. And then there has to be somebody out there to hear it. Somebody preaches the word, you hear it. And then you believe it. And then with faith in your heart, you call upon the name of the Lord. And he says that's how it works without exception. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. That is the only way God has given us to be saved. That's what he says. Look in chapter 10, verse 11. For the scripture says, whosoever believes on him, Jesus, shall not be ashamed. Verse 12. He says there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that do what? That call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's saying that's what has to happen. And then he tells how you get there, what we just talked about, preaching, hearing, believing, faith in your heart. And that leads to calling on the name of the Lord. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I ask you to come in my heart, wash me of my sins in your blood. I make you my Lord. Confess you as my, the risen Lord. And then you're saved. But he said, that's Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. That's the way it works. No exceptions. The question then would be raising, well, why didn't that work for Israel? That seems simple enough, doesn't it? But Moses said, he said earlier in that chapter 10, that the word was near them in their heart and in their mouth. He says, it's not some hard thing you have to do. You don't have to go up and bring Jesus down. You don't have to bring him up from the grave. The word is just right there for you to believe and confess and to call on the name of the Lord. So he raises a question as a result of that. Somehow they missed it. And so in verse 18, Paul raises another question. He says about Israel, but I say, have they not heard? He said, is it possible 
that Israel didn't hear the gospel? And his answer is right there at the end of verse 18. He says, well, yes, truly, verily. He says, their sound went out into all the earth and their words unto the end of the earth. He said, it's impossible that Israel didn't hear. Everybody heard. He said, the sound of the gospel went all over the world unto the ends of the earth. He said, everybody heard that gospel. So how could Israel not hear themselves? He says, that's not the problem. So then in verse 19, he goes to yet another question. And so by now, can we see something here about the way and method that Paul likes to use in teaching? What does he like to do? He likes to raise questions. Whether you're thinking about them or not, he'll raise them for you and get you thinking about them. But he likes to raise these questions, and then he answers them. And I'll tell you the thing that I said earlier, too. He uses his answer. He uses Old Testament scripture because that would mean a lot to those people back then. So he's not giving his opinion what he thinks, not answering in a general way. Everything, he's pointing to specific verses. Here is the answer. So here in 19, he raises another question. He says, well, maybe they heard, but maybe they just didn't understand. And that's what he says there. But I say, maybe they heard, but did Israel not know? Like I said, maybe they didn't understand. And he answers that question by saying, basically, how could they not understand? Because look what he says. First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people and by a foolish nation. I will anger you. He's like, how could they not understand? The foolish Gentiles got it. <laughs> so how's Israel not getting it? He's saying an unlearned and ignorant people got it. The foolish people, the Gentiles. In it. And you're going to tell me Israel couldn't understand it? He's saying they had it plainly written in their scriptures. It was right there in front of them to understand that if they provoked God through idol worship. If you read that verse there, if you have a reference in your Bible, you go back and read where that's in the Old Testament. Before he says that, I'll provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. He said before that, if you provoke me through your idol worship, I'm telling you ahead of time, I'm going to provoke you to jealousy by a people that are not a people. And that's the very thing Israel did. So these guys, especially the leaders, the Pharisees, how are they missing all that? They've got their experts in the law. They know everything about what the Bible says. And that's his point. How could they not know? They should have known. They didn't want to know is really what he's saying there. Because he goes on, then he quotes about Isaiah, and Isaiah says the same thing. So he ends chapter 10 with verse 21, and look what he says. But to Israel, the nation, he says, all day long. In other words, he's never stopped his love for those people. All day long, he says, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. Despite all their disobedience, despite all their unbelief, despite their not accepting the way of salvation that he's presented, he said, I've still, I've stretched out my hands to you to come. And yet they reject him. They still reject him. They have rejected him. So let me just briefly sum up chapters 9 and 10. What we've seen here in chapters 9 and 10, that the promises have failed, that God's people, Israel, aren't being saved as a whole. But Paul says, God said they never said they would be. The whole nation would be saved. Only the elect, only the ones he has compassion on. And 
So chapter 9 is looking at this whole thing of the nation of Israel and a remnant being saved from God's point of view. That's what we're seeing there, God's point of view. I will reach down and choose whom I want to from the nation of Israel. I'm not guaranteeing that everybody that came out of the loins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be amongst those people because I pick who they are, whether it's Jew or Gentile. He goes into talking about the Gentile. But that's what he's saying. But from their side, that's what we get into with chapter 10. The Israelites, from their side, they've rejected God's method of salvation, faith. So we look at his side from chapter 9, but the reason they're not saved is because they've rejected his method, which is faith. And instead, they've sought to be right with God by obeying the law, by works. And they failed, is what Paul says, because that's not God's way. So they're culpable, they're guilty, they're perishing, it's their fault. They can't blame God. And that's what chapter 10 is telling us. Instead, the Gentiles, he tells us, who are not God's privileged people have obtained the salvation that the Jews were zealously working for, that they never could get. The ones that weren't looking for it got it by hearing, believing, and confessing the gospel. So Israel could have done the same thing. They heard the same word. They understood the consequences of not receiving that word, but they remained in disobedience. And so that brings us over to chapter 11. So he's saying he's ended chapter 10, saying he's held out his hands to a disobedient people. In chapter 11, the question would be, if Israel's rejected God's method, faith, and they continue to reject it and seek salvation by the works of the law, they've just left God standing there with his arms out. And you see very few of them coming to him. Never the nation as a whole now, do you? So it would appear, <laughs> if election is true, that God's done choosing the Jews. That's the way it would look. If you look at the picture you have there coming in at the end of chapter 10. And so, well, maybe the replacement theology people are right. You know, maybe the church is now God's people. And Israel, is, as a beloved nation, is just a thing of the Old Testament past doesn't mean anything now. Maybe they're right if you didn't have chapter 11, right? You might begin to wonder because they're not coming in and Paul has a broken heart over the fact. But that's what we're getting back to, this question we asked. That's what Paul's asking. And I say then, in light of everything I've just said, has God cast away his people? Is that the way it appears to you, replacement people? And he says, you guys got it all wrong. There is no way God has cast off his people. And Paul goes on in chapter 11 then to give two examples to support his claim that he hasn't cast off his people. And first example he uses is himself. If you're going to say God's done with the nation of Israel, then he says, why am I saved? I'm a Jew of Jews. You don't get more Jewish than me. He describes his lineage. He says, I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. And so Paul has traced his lineage. He knows where he's from. He knows his roots. He's saying, so if you're going to say God's cast off Israel, what are you looking at me? I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm the preacher to the Gentiles. What are you talking about? It doesn't mean anything. He had his ancestry checked out, but he did not have, like we do today, Ancestry.com or Heritage.com or, or I found one, FamilyTreeSearcher.com. How much that would cost. Well, Paul didn't have any of that. But they knew their roots. 
So at the Holocaust Museum, getting back to that, they, they had this book on display that Lisa pointed out to me. It was a record of these Jewish families that lived in this city in Germany prior to the Holocaust. And what it was saying, this little whole display here, and this book was just part of it, that his persecution began to increase because the Jews were trying their best to blend in society. But as this persecution increased, the Jews became more Jewish. They started their own schools because they got kicked out of the public schools and began celebrating Jewish holidays and so on. But this book, when they had it opened on this page, it had the tribes of Israel listed and the number of Jews from each tribe that lived in this town. So this is clear up in the 1930s, it would have been. And I mean, it had like, you'd see Judah, 70, Asher, 85, Levi, 100, Benjamin, 51. And Lisa and I are looking at it, and she says, how would those people have known they came from those tribes? I said, I don't know. I was curious, I don't know. It didn't tell you. And there wasn't a Jewish person around there I could ask. But I told her, though, I said, well, I'll tell you what, though. I don't know how they knew that, but I know one thing. I know God knows where they're all at, and he's been preserving those people all these thousands of years. That's, I guarantee you that. <laughs> so he knows. But I thought that was interesting. But Paul's saying, look, I'm telling you where I'm from. I'm a Jew that I could trace myself all the way back to Abraham himself through Benjamin. So to say God's cast off his people, I'm an example. So someone might say, all right, Paul, what does one saved Jew prove? <laughs> that doesn't mean God isn't done with Israel as a nation. You know, what's a saved Jew here or there somebody might raise? And so that's what he goes on in verse 2. He says, look, God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. He says, don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life? He's saying he hadn't cast away his people that he foreknew. And that word foreknow means to choose beforehand. So Paul's saying that, that the nation of Israel, in that nation, God has always had an elect remnant that he has chosen them, the ones he foreknew before they were ever born. That's what that word foreknowledge is telling you. Before they were ever born, he's always had a people. And that's when he's quoting there about Elijah, that's 1 Kings 19, verses 10 and 18. So Elijah thought that he was the only one left. I am left alone, and they seek my life. Abraham's only remaining seed. But what was God's answer to him? But what saith the answer of God unto Elijah, verse 4? He says, I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. So what's he saying? He's saying God has been faithful to Abraham. He's kept that promised seed. He did it 800 years ago when Elijah the prophet was on this earth. And he says, he goes on to say there, he said, even so, verse 5, at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So he's saying 800 years ago from the time Paul's speaking, God had his remnant right there. And he's continued to do that right on up, he says, to this present time. And so why is he comparing those two? Why is he bringing up this thing with Elijah? Because back then the nation was apostate. And it looked like they all had forsaken God and been forsaken by God. That's why Elijah's saying that. He didn't know about the 7,000. 
But God's like, ah, whether you know it or not, I'm up here looking down there. I've made this promise to Abraham, and I'm going to remain faithful to it. I've got 7,000 people you don't know about, Elijah. It's not just you. I'm always going to have that remnant. And it's the same from then, from Abraham to Elijah, from Elijah to Paul, up until today. We still have a remnant. Amen? And they're all over the world. But now there's a remnant even within the nation of Israel living right there. I'm talking about Christians, Christian Jews. Because when we we took a tour over there, our tour guide was a charismatic. And at one point, I was asking him, I said, well, how many people are saved in this nation? And I don't remember the exact number. It was a smaller number than I would have thought. But he said, there's a revival going on now. Because the Christians over there get persecuted. We went to a guy's place. This guy had his Baptist ministry, and uh, they preached the word or whatever. Man, they had their electricity shut down. The Orthodox Jews did everything they could to drive those people out. They went through a lot. So, yeah, we should be pro-Israel, but don't think that Israel is a godly people. They are not right now. They are the cut-off branches for the most part. But they're still God's chosen people. So verses 6 to 10, Paul explains that the doctrine of election by grace means that some Israelites will be given God's grace and believe, but most will be hardened and blinded by God because of their sin. Look at verse 7. He says, what then? Israel has not obtained that which he seeks for, but the election has obtained it, this salvation, this righteousness. The election has obtained it, but he says in verse 7, the rest were blinded. So you go down to verse 11, and it's interesting to me there. Paul said, what about this stumbling? What about this blinding? What about this hardening that has happened to Israel? Look what it says in verse 11. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? So that means, is it a final fall, which is what these replacement people are saying? They've had a final fall. And what is his answer again? He's back to the God forbid. There's no way. But through their fall... Salvation has come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. So he's saying there's two purposes here. So Israel has temporarily fallen or stumbled. That's what Paul said, and it's continued up to this time. There's two reasons for it. The first reason he gives there in verse 11 is that through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So that is how we're able to be grafted into the tree because of their fall. And the second reason he, he said is God allowed them to fall to bring the Gentiles in to provoke them to jealousy. He's saying God wants the Jews to see that his blessing is now on these Gentiles and these churches and to be jealous of that and saying, hey, I want to get right with God. That's part of the reason it's given there. So they could be brought in too. So you look in verses 12 through 14, their temporary stumbling, it's served to bless the Gentiles. Salvation is now received by them to give riches of grace to the Gentiles. He says, verse 12, now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the Jews, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh. In other words, he wants to provoke them to jealousy through this ministry. Get all these Gentiles saved and God's power and blessing on them, Paul is saying. 
And through that, I'll get them jealous. And he says, I might save some. And so the idea there is, you got a kid playing with a toy, even if he doesn't care about it, and you take it from him, and he sees you take it over to another kid, and that kid's happy with it. Guess what that kid wants? He wants that toy back. And that's the idea behind this. They're letting their toys sit there, so to speak, Israel, but seeing that God gives it to the Gentiles, and Paul's saying, I want to save some, provoke them to jealousy. He knows that the nation isn't going to happen it that way, but he's saying maybe some of them can't be, so I'm going to increase my ministry to the Gentiles here. The more of them that are blessed, maybe the more of Israel will get jealous and want part of it. And he moves on here in verses 15 to 23, and through these verses, Paul uses the imagery of the olive tree. He uses that metaphor, that imagery. And the olive tree clearly represents the nation of Israel. And he speaks of the root. Look in verses 16 and 17. It says, For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches are be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, so he's saying some of the branches have been broken off, but this root of the olive tree, what is that? What is this root? And I believe it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. So he's saying something there in verse 16 that is obviously not true. He says, if the root is holy, so are the branches, and the branches being national, ethnic Israel. But listen, they weren't holy then, were they? And they're not holy today. But he's pointing ahead to what when he's saying that? He's pointing ahead to verse 26, when all Israel will be saved. All the branches then will be holy. So in verse 17, what's he talking about? He's dealing with the reality of how this tree is right now, this tree of Israel. And the reality is the branches that are not holy have been what? Broken off, haven't they? They've been broken off of their own tree. And that's been most of the nation since the days of the apostles up until this present time. So Paul's saying what's happened there is, in God breaking off those natural branches, the ethnic Jews, he's made room for me and you, the Gentile people. We've been grafted in, he says, to Israel's tree. And as a result of that, grafted into their tree, we get to partake of the root, he says, and fatness of the tree. So we're grafted into their tree, but here's the thing we need to remember. We still don't cease to be Gentiles. We're still Gentiles. We're not Jews. But now we're adopted into the family of God. And what happens? We become what? Abraham's seed is what it teaches. And before, Abraham's seed was reserved only for who? Israel and the seed within Israel. The Israel within Israel. But now, Gentiles, we get to partake of all the spiritual blessings promised to Israel in the Old Testament. So if you would, put something there in Romans and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And it's pretty clear here that we were not part of that, but we are now. So Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 11, it says, Wherefore, remember that you being, he's writing to an Ephesians, a Gentile church, that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That at that time you were without Christ. And look what he says, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in this world. But now in Christ, you who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And then look down in verse 19. He says, now therefore you are no more. So he just got through saying that's what we were before we were Christians, right? He's saying, but now verse 19, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but what? Fellow citizens were grafted in to the tree. Fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're brought into the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I mean, that is no small thing. And also it says covenants. I believe it also includes the covenant made with David. And so he says, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, but now we are citizens, fellow citizens. We're in the commonwealth because that's what commonwealth means. It means a body of citizens. So do all of you know that we live here? This is called the commonwealth. I think there's like four states that still use that. We're called the commonwealth of Kentucky. So I was originally born in Columbus, Ohio, a Yankee. I was a Yankee and I was a citizen, <laughs> citizen of the state of Ohio by nature and by birth for 20 some years of my life, right? But when I moved here in 1984, I became a citizen of the Commonwealth of Kentucky with all the rights and privileges that go along with being a citizen of Kentucky. The same rights and privileges, even though I was born in Ohio and was formerly a citizen up there as Terry Murphy. If he hadn't born and raised her, I don't know anybody that is by nature a citizen of the Commonwealth. But I've got the same rights and privileges he does. That doesn't change the fact that I was born in Columbus, Ohio, because that's on my birth certificate. That'll never change, okay? But I've been grafted into the Commonwealth of Kentucky. As I said, all its rights and privileges. And that's what Paul is saying has happened here to the Gentiles, right? And Gentiles, if you don't know, that's everyone who's not an ethnic or national Jew. So he said that here in Ephesians. We've read it in Romans. And he says the same thing in Galatians. Galatians 3 says that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say in that chapter, for you are all the children of God in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, I had somebody ask me one time, and I've had this happen several times through the years. Maybe you have too. You'll Give somebody an Old Testament promise, and they'll be like, well, that was for Israel. That's not for me. You ever had somebody say that, or you ever thought that? I've, I've had that happen. So people read Psalm 91 saying, they wonder, how could that apply to me? That's an Old Testament promise made to Israel, and I'm a New Testament Gentile. And this should answer the question, what we're talking about here. So we don't somehow, by being grafted in, we don't somehow mystically become an ethnic Jew. Or we are not now the true Israel or the new Israel. But we've been grafted into their vine. They are still national Israel, ethnic Israel. We are still Gentiles. But we're grafted from the wild tree. We are grafted in to their tree. So we're both with our separate nationalities now, one in Christ. We both partake of the commonwealth of Israel. Right along with them. And I don't know if that sink it in or not, but Isaiah 53, so he says he's wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And I don't know the prophets. Isaiah's probably thinking our, meaning Israel's, right? But since we've been grafted into their tree, that our becomes ours, right? 
What he did on that cross is as much ours, Gentiles, we share in that new covenant. And that's the basis, that blood being shed in Isaiah 53. But when you read about the new covenant in Hebrews, it doesn't talk about the Gentiles. He's saying with the house of Israel, that covenant's made. But it's made to us by faith. We're grafted into their tree. That's the significant. And so look in verse 17, back in Romans 11. The end of verse 17 there, he says, we're grafted in among them and with them, believing Israelites, we partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So we share the root, the patriarchs, the covenant made with Abraham, and the fatness. Do you know what the fatness of an olive tree is? It's the oily sap that that tree produces. So we're fully entitled to all the promises made in the Old Testament to Israel. And that is the fatness. All those promises made to Israel, spiritual promises. It's the sap that nourishes us. So the promises in the Psalms that we read about in the Psalms that are for comfort and encouragement to them, they're just as much ours. They're ours. The promises of God being with us as it was with the Jews in times of trouble, trials, and sickness are ours. And the spiritual principles that he gave to Israel with the promise of God's faithfulness are just as much ours as theirs. When you read the Old Testament, we're grafted into their tree. So you can read a promise, if you don't mind, just real quick, just turn back to Isaiah 41. I just want to give an example. So you look at Isaiah 41. It says, Isaiah 41, 8, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. And so someone might say, well, man, everything he says after that, it's obvious who he's addressing. But from what we just said, though, he's addressing us. We are now part of that, right? We are part of the seed of Abraham. So we're not Israel, but we've been grafted into their vine. So when he speaks to them, he's speaking to us in that way. Because look what he goes on to say in verse 10. This is really to Israel, but yet we sing this song in our church. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I withhold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And on and on. Well, my point is... We sing that song, but we're singing a song that was initially addressed to Israel. Well, we don't have to look at it that way. If you read it in context, it is. But no, we are grafted into their tree. We're part of them. We're part of that commonwealth. We're a citizen with them. So those promises are ours, and that should encourage us. So what should our attitude be towards the nation of Israel? What should our attitude be? So obviously, we can look. If you've been over there, it's a godless nation. But they've temporarily stumbled and fallen. So should our attitude be like we talked last week, like Martin Luther's? And he said, what then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Should that be our attitude? Or like Augustine's, do not kill them, but make them homeless wanderers? Should that be our attitude towards the Jewish people? Because verse 18, go back to Romans 11, warns us. Paul gives us a warning here about having a right attitude towards them. So Romans eleven eighteen, 18, Paul says, don't boast against the branches. And he's talking about the Jewish branches that in unbelief have been cut off from the tree. He says, if you boast, thou bearest not the root, 
but the root D. And that word for boast means to be arrogant. And he's saying, don't be arrogant and look down on the Jews because you've been given the grace of God and they obviously are under his chastisement and they're going through a bad time and there are godless people. He's saying, don't look down on them because he says you need to remember something. That's what he's saying there in verse 18. Boast not against the branches because if you boast, remember should be stuck in there. Remember something, that you don't bear the root, but the root bears thee. He's saying, we're not the ones supporting Israel. We're not the ones supporting that nation. We're not supporting the root. But the root of Israel is what is supporting us. The root meaning Abraham and what's come through him. And so what Paul is saying basically is that we need to remember that salvation is of the Jews. And never forget that. We should never have a wrong attitude or an anti-Semitic attitude. And I read one man that was saying, you know, really, people make Jewish jokes all the time. And he's saying, you just ought to really just cut them out. It, it's not helpful at all. I got enough Jewish blood in me, I ought to be able to make Jewish jokes, but I'm going to stop myself. But he's saying the root supports you. And, you know, when you're a missionary and you depend on support, you better not have an arrogant attitude a condescending attitude towards those that are giving you support, right? Because they cut you off. You're the one that's being supported. If they cut you off, you're going to fall. And that's what Paul's saying there. He's saying the root of Israel and the promises made to Abraham, that is what is supporting us. He says, don't be arrogant towards those people. So what should it do? It should be just the opposite. We should have a humble attitude towards the Jewish nation, towards the Jewish people. Just the opposite of what he's saying. He says, don't be boast and don't be arrogant. Because he goes on to say, we not only shouldn't boast and we shouldn't be arrogant, but he said we should fear. That should be our attitude. Look in verses 19 through 22. He says, you will say then the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. He says, because of unbelief they were broken off, but you stand by faith. And look what he says at the end of verse 20. Be not high-minded, but what? But fear, why? Because if God spared not the natural branches, his beloved nation, if he didn't spare them, take heed, he says, verse 21, lest he also doesn't spare you. Verse 22, behold, look at this, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell the Jews, severity, a severe spanking, you could say, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. He says, if you don't, Otherwise, he said, you will be cut off. That's another way of saying we need to be working out our salvation how? With fear and trembling. Because he says the Jews were broken off because of unbelief by not putting their trust in God. That's what he says. And if we think we can remain in the vine and not be wholly trusting the Lord, Paul says that is a high-minded attitude. That's an arrogant attitude. And... This man, William Shedd, he's an old theologian and just real practical, though. I really like this guy. And he wrote this about the whole thing about people who are like, I don't want, want to have to live in fear of losing my salvation. Well, listen to what he said. He says, the children of God are warned against apostasy as one of the means of preventing apostasy. The holy and filial fear of falling is one of the means of not falling. So he's saying... The fact that you're realizing, I can't go there. I can't look at that pornography because God threatens me with hell. 
or I'm not going to do this or do that. He's saying, that's not a bad thing. Saying that fear that you could be cut off by going into sin is what keeps people from going into sin, from being cut off. That's what he says. The holy and filial fear of falling is one of the means God uses of not falling. And listen to what he ended with. He says, he who has no such fear because he presumes upon his election will fall. So the fear of God is a good thing. That's what it says in Proverbs, all through Proverbs. Proverbs is based on the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it continues right on through. So verse 22, he says here <laughs> that we have got to continue trusting in the goodness of God. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise you'll be cut off. And so what does that mean? It means looking for his grace to continue in our lives. And the grace of God will do what? So what does it mean to continue in his goodness? To continue in his grace, which will lead you into holiness. Because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And that's what it means to continue in his goodness, to strive by his grace, to live holy lives, and when we miss it, to look to his goodness to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because verse 21 is telling us that if God didn't spare his natural branches, his chosen nation, we can't somehow think that we would be immune from the same thing happening to us. And that's why Paul says, take heed. It's a dire warning. If we don't continue in his goodness, he's saying he will cut us off, just like he did Israel at the end of verse 22. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. And that's where I want to end tonight. So we've seen tonight that God has temporarily set, and I mean it is just temporarily set Israel aside as a nation because they refused his plan of salvation, which is based on faith, because they wanted to have righteousness and salvation their own way, based on works. Self-righteous obedience to the law. And God says that's not going to work. And so he's always had a remnant. Since he's made the promise to Abraham, he's always had a remnant. But for the most part, the branches have been cut off. I mean, we can see that. And he's done that. Why? So that the Gentiles, us, that's what's given us our chance, if you want to say it that way. That's how we've been able to be grafted in because those branches were cut off. And so the grace of salvation has come to us. And he's done that also to provoke Israel to jealousy. So really, rather than having an arrogant attitude towards the Jews, we should have an attitude we want to see them saved and witness to them and treat them nice. Not that you wouldn't anyways. <laughs> As a Christian, right, we treat all people nice. But he's saying that way you can provoke them to jealousy and maybe save some. And so, like I said, we shouldn't have an arrogant attitude towards the fallen Jews. We shouldn't exalt ourselves above them or be haughty. But we should fear and take heed that what happened to them doesn't happen to us. Because it will. And Paul warns and admonishes that if we don't continue in God's goodness, trusting him, walking in his grace, living holy lives, he says, if you don't do that, then you will be cut off too from the olive tree. Because God cut them off, and it's not a problem for him to cut us off. But he doesn't want to do that. So the admonishment is continue in his goodness. Amen? We'll pick up there next time. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the 
word you've given us here in Romans and Paul's explanation of the Jewish nation and, and what our attitude should be towards them and lessons that we can learn from them, Lord, that we can't make it in, we can't have your righteousness through works, but only through faith, through hearing your word and believing it and calling upon your name. That is how righteousness is obtained. And we also pray tonight, Lord, for the nation of Israel, and I just ask that you just would continue to have your hand on them. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem and that your mercy would be extended to them, Lord, and that through our witness here and if we run across any Jewish people, Lord, that we could be a means of saving some and that maybe our testimony could provoke some to jealousy to come to you. And we just ask that you would be gracious and maybe open those doors for us. And we just thank you for this time that you've given us here to look at your word tonight and to be gathered together here. And I just ask that you'll bless everyone on their way home and keep everyone safe and bless everyone this week at work and at home. And as they go about their business, that your hand will be on us as a congregation as we read your word and pray and fellowship with each other. And we just thank you that you'll do that for us and that you've been a good God to us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.